with Thanksgiving season upon us, it's it's worth reflecting a bit on food, uh, not just on what we eat and, and uh, how it brings us together, but on where food comes from and who makes that possible. One of the things that became more apparent during COVID is our food and food supply system, how vital it is to all of us and how a lot more goes into food than just a trip to the grocery store. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty complex story and, and central to it are the farm workers and farm worker housing. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And today on the show, we're going to look into the complex story of the role of farm workers and farm worker housing in our food supply, and how this often underappreciated part of the economy and the housing market, and these underappreciated people, have a profound impact on all of our lives. To help us tell the story, we are joined by three guests with long histories in the development of farm worker housing in central Washington. Marty Miller, Executive Director of the Office of Rural and Farm Worker Housing, uh, also known as ORF, Tony DeGuano, VP of Originations at National Equity Fund, and Brian Ketchum, Director at Catholic Charities Housing Services. So thanks so much, uh, all three of you, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you guys here. And I think that um, part of that is, you know, farm worker and farm worker housing is, uh, is something that's really a niche of the market that a lot of our listeners and I myself don't have a ton of expertise in. So I wonder if we can start and just get kind of a brief uh, lay of the land of, of what's involved. Sure. Well, this is Marty, and I'm happy to uh, respond initially. Anyway, um, part of the part of the context is that um, not only is food an essential part of life, as you mentioned, um, but uh, it's a huge part. Agriculture is a huge part of our economy, and in Washington State. Um, it's what we refer to as labor-intensive agriculture, meaning it takes a lot of people to uh, tend to and harvest the crops. And so, um, and as a result, there's a high degree of housing demand associated with uh, the farm workers who do the critical work to bring the food to market. And um, an element that makes it challenging from the housing perspective is that farm worker households are typically very low income um, and they're also seasonally employed. Even though they may be year-round residents in their communities, uh, their employment is oftentimes on a seasonal basis. And with that fluctuation of income uh, makes housing affordability a real challenge. And it also makes housing operations uh, challenging as well. So one aspect of this that I'd like to, to understand a little bit better. So you, you mentioned in, uh, in Washington State, it's very labor intensive work, uh, but, also, but also seasonal. So is there some, some difference, you know, when we think about different types of farms, like lar large farm, uh, lar large agriculture uh, versus you know, smaller and, and medium sized farms, is there a difference in the approach and, and uh, the needs and, and employment for, for farm workers? Well, there certainly can be. Um, uh, smaller farms um, are less, less likely, for example, to be able to provide their own housing. And one of the things we've learned over the years is that housing can be an incentive for recruiting and retaining a good workforce. Um, the larger employers um, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years in particular, have done more investing in housing as one example, um, whereas that's just not economically viable for the 
smaller uh, family-run operations. And so um, as you go about this, how is it that you identify the need like in, in a given area and then, and then seek to, to meet that need? Well, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to have Tony and Brian add in to, um, but uh, oftentimes for us, uh, the, the requests come from communities, um, city councils, uh, church groups, uh, interested and, and active residents who identify a real shortage of affordable housing or, or in many communities, any type of housing. And so uh, they're looking for opportunities to try to um, um, bring in uh, uh, additional housing in order to serve the need. So I'd like to go, you know, just go back in time a little bit and, and look at this in, in a bit more, uh, a bit more historical context. So, so Marty, and since you started talking about this, maybe we can just go into a little bit more more detail there. But you know, just maybe over the last fifty years, how has farm worker housing changed? Well, um, a lot of uh, a lot of farm worker housing um, fifty years ago was uh, um, on farm. It there was no common standard that had to be met, um, or uh, in many cases, it it was um, just people finding places to live wherever they could. Uh, and that involved a lot of substandard conditions and a lot of doubling up. Uh, in fact, less than 50 years ago in a community in central Washington where agriculture is thriving, uh, but, the, but the inventory of housing has not kept pace, um, there have been terrible overcrowding conditions in mobile home parks and in one instance, um, uh, an unscrupulous landlord was actually renting out crawl space for migrant workers to sleep in. Um, so it was really terrible conditions and, uh, and an, an example of what, what needed to be addressed. Um, there were some other instances of uh, camping in, in public forests and cooking over open flames and a lack of uh, water, public water or, or potable water and, and, uh, and toilets. Uh, so a lot of unhealthy conditions that um, would put, put residents at risk and communities uh, at health risk. So Brian, fa fast forwarding then a little bit. So tell us about how, how you all at, at Catholic Charities uh, have, have made an impact there. You know, how, how does your business work in, in, in trying to solve for those, those, those issues? Yeah, well, I think, you know, to dovetail off of, of Marty's comments, you know, when we're looking at where to develop in, in central Washington, um, you know, we do we have a network of local parishes uh, that we talk to. We talk to uh, local city officials. We look at market studies and we also look at um, what crops are being planted in the area and how that changes the need for labor. Um, you know, and so we try and identify and anticipate areas that are going to need additional, uh, you know, farm worker housing, whether that's on a seasonal or year round basis. Um, and, and as recently as, uh, you know, within the last 10 years, we've seen instances and, and reports of, uh, as Marty said, you know, owners that are renting out, um, in some cases, they rent out a driveway space for a family to live in their vehicle. In other cases, they rent out a garage. 
Um, and in one instance, they rented out their basement and they had 21 uh, adults and children living in a, in a basement in a home. And so you see a wide variety of instances that really, uh, you know, testify to the, the, the lack of uh, safe and affordable housing for farm workers in particular. Um, the, the housing that we uh, at Catholic Charities Housing Services predominantly provide is, is year-round farm worker housing. So while farm workers may work for, uh, they're seasonally employed and may work for multiple growers in a year, um, they're typically uh, housed and live in the community year-round. Wow, that, that really captures the need, just those examples that you give. Uh, I wonder if we could speak now to... Um, what some of the what some of the properties look like then as as you get them built? Sure. So for us today, we have um, 25 different multifamily housing developments, and about 80% of those serve farm workers and their families. Uh, these are uh, often um, in rural communities that we work in. They're the uh, the newest and and the highest quality housing in that community, um, and, and we're able to do that through a combination of funding sources. Um, such as here in Washington State, um, we have a housing trust fund, um, which are uh, housing resources that are appropriated uh, by the legislature um, that we're able to compete for funding uh, and couple that with um, the low-income housing tax credit program uh, to provide affordable multifamily housing uh, that's um, you know, typically targeted to larger households, uh, given the farm workers and families that we serve. Uh, so more often than not, those are three and four bedroom uh, units. Um, and then we, we also have ADA accessible units. Um, and those developments, um, you know, they're, they're really focused on long life cycle costs in the course of construction so that they're a very uh, effective and efficient use of taxpayer dollars. They are um, very energy uh, efficient. Um, Washington State has one of the highest uh, energy codes in the country, and, and part of our funding requirements are that we exceed that code by at least 10%. Uh, and so that results in very low utility costs uh, for our residents as well as a way of providing additional savings to families. So, so one question that comes to mind, so you, you mentioned a lot of the, the employment is seasonal. And so how does that how does that factor into the way you design housing, think about lease up and, and occupancy over time? Fortunately for us uh, in in central Washington, what we've seen you know, from the agricultural industry is that growers have been looking to at ways and strategies to retain their workforce for a longer period of time. And, and so part of that strategy has been um, both crop diversification uh, throughout the year, as well as uh, greater diversification diversification in the varietals uh, within those crops, and so our growing season, um, you know, extends from uh, March, April, all the way to November here in terms of kind of a, a high demand for labor, uh, with obvious peaks during the harvest seasons. Um, you know, typically in uh, in May and June for cherries, and and then in August through November for for apples. Uh, and there's a number of different crops in between, but those are kind of the peak labor demands. So so for us, th there's eight to ten months of active, uh, you know, high demand for labor, 
Uh, and then even in the off season now, there is, um, there's still ongoing demand for farm labor in terms of pruning orchards um, and, and, and just off season work prepping for the next season, as well as a, a lot of processing facilities um, for packing apples, cherries, uh, you know, pears, tree fruit. So a wide variety of, of, uh, of, of employment opportunities and, and often in the packing warehouses, you know, those are year round jobs. And, and actually this is Marty, Corey, if I could add to, uh, Brian's description. Um, if you think about, and at least in Washington state, if you think about the farm worker population in total, which is roughly, you know, a hundred to 125,000 people, not including their dependents, um, about 75% of that population are year-round residents in their communities. So even though they may be employed seasonally, they live in their community and in the housing that we work to build on a year-round basis. Uh, and about 25% are uh, generally considered migrant workers who are in the area on a temporary basis while the while the crops are being harvested or that kind of thing. And in that case, we build a different type of housing, which we generally call seasonally occupied housing, uh, which can in many instances look more like a congregate living situation where unrelated individuals may be sharing uh, a unit and have common cooking facilities and so forth. And, um, and so, so those are broadly speaking, kind of two, two different types of housing that, that both serve farm workers generally, but one is for year round occupancy and another is for temporary occupancy. So have we seen a, a change over time in, in uh, the, the type of work or, or, or maybe put differently, um, the permanence of, of uh, farm worker residents in their communities? I mean, you mentioned 75, 25, uh, 75% being in the community full time. Is that, has that changed over time? Absolutely. Um, the, the trend is clearly toward um, what we refer to as settling out of the migrant stream. So, um, you know, 20 years ago, that ratio might have been 65, 35. Um, and so as, as time goes by, uh, more, more people settle out of the migrant stream and, and, are, and become year-round residents of their community. There's a good resource um, that the U.S. Department of Labor uh, has called the National Ag Worker Survey, or NAS for short, and it's regional. Um, I think it's three broad regions of the United States. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily dig down to state or county level data, but it, it gives some good info about um, these trends that we're talking about. That's, uh, I think, uh, tying together kind of this changing trend of people being more permanent in a given area and, and just the, the real need and then the quality of housing that, that you guys are, are able to put together. That's such a desirable change in conditions to, to have um, some of the best housing in the area available to these folks. But it, there must be a lot of details involved in getting to the point that you get that built. I wonder if we can talk through um, how does that get done? For us, you know, it 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 is a time-intensive activity, um, and when when the stars align, uh, 
uh, it typically takes at least three years to go from a concept to to lease up. Um, you know, so once we've identified a community in, in the housing need, uh, you know, we begin doing some land assembly in that community, looking for uh, land that's uh, you know, vacant uh, and appropriately zoned and, and located with uh, near to or with access to services uh, such as water and sewer uh, and roads, uh, so infrastructure. Um, and then it's assembling and, and working on the development and operating uh, budgets and pro formas um, to ensure that we have not only uh, you know upfront viability in terms of capital resources, but that uh, the property is operational viability for the long term. Uh, and then we, for us at Catholic Charities Housing Services, we partner with development consultants like ORF um, on our housing development, and so we engage them to uh, help us uh, run that analysis. Uh, and then apply for and compete for uh, public and private resources to develop this housing. Tony, from a from a syndicator perspective, how how do you uh, how do you work on this? And, and are there any challenges finding investors uh, for farm worker housing? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So I my my participation in this process is very late in the game compared to the timeline that that Brian and Marty are outlining. Um, you know, when they've identified a site and they've been working on it, I'm very conscientious that this has been their baby for up to two years by the time they're talking about this, this project and the site and location and the community in which they're going to be serving. Uh, you know, the first step for me, foremost, is always trying to identify an investor that has a need or an interest in that area. I've been very fortunate over the years. Um, we're very mindful and, and well aware of how important the agricultural industry is for the Yakima Valley and that region. And so we're never challenged by finding investors that have interest in that region. Um, even in the, the times in which we are today, where there are certainly um, in the age of COVID, there have been some additional challenges to the economic environment. Uh, we were fortunate that we do have an investor here uh, with whom we're speaking now that does have a need to serve in this community. And uh, that benefited us tremendously, you know, but I do want to put an emphasis again on how important it is to illustrate that. I think Brian said, when the stars align, you're talking a three year timeline from you know, soup to nuts, so to speak, when you're talking about leasing up the property. Um, that's, that's probably a, a conservative estimate. I'm, I'm, believing that there are probably circumstances where that timeline can stretch to be more than four years long uh, between identifying a site and lining up your funding sources. By the time that I'm in the game, we're looking at a project that not only has a lot of their soft funds lined up and site control, they now have an allocation of federal tax credits looking for the investor. And that's why, I mean, that condition alone can just add on an extra year to the process for them to go through the allocation process through the state allocating agency. That's a great point, Tony. I would just add, you know, uh, two, two comments. Um, one is you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the three-year deal is, is when, when everything is perfect. Um, we've had developments that have taken upwards of seven years to get fully funded. So from the time that we've identified land to uh, actually a beginning construction. Um, and 
and the second point is to really reiterate that um, be, because of those long time frames, it, it's so incredibly important to have strong partners in this effort, such as the Office of Rural and Farmworker Housing and uh, and working with National Equity Fund on, on the investor side, because without those partnerships in place, um, these developments would not hold together over that long time frame. I, I do want to I do want to say, you know, th there are conversations that happen between Marty, Brian and I well in advance of the actual allocation of credit when they're going through the process of putting in an application. Um, so th these aren't intelligences that are unknown to me about what they're working on. That's part of our very fluid conversational relationship that we have that's ongoing and uh, demonstrated year in and year out. Um, one, one thing I do I'd like to go back to is a, a point that I believe Brian made very, very early in this conversation about the community um, that is there. And, and um, one of our hosts asked this question, you know, about the, the, the sense of the community that we have for these places. Um, they are very rural environments, um, that, of which we're talking about. We're talking about very small towns, cities, like Warden, Washington, maybe has less than 3,000 people. Or anecdotally, I can tell you, when I was first getting involved with uh, the Catholic Charities portfolio almost 15 years ago now, there's a, a project that they have in Buena, Washington, which is, I'm sure, an unincorporated community, probably a little bit southeast of Yakima. I, I would guess probably doesn't have more than 1,000 people in the community. There's a post office across the street from the property. And I was arrived a little bit early for a site visit, and I thought, well, I'll kind of nose around town and see what I can learn. And the post office was open, and so I walked in, and there was an employee there, and I just said, hey, can you tell me a little bit about Buena? And he said, what do you want to know? And I said, tell me about the town. What's the population of the town like? What, what's the, the, the demography? And he pointed over my shoulder back behind me to the property, and he said, that's the whole town. And in his estimation, you know, he is he is looking at the, this property that you know, Catholic Charities built, and he's identifying that as the community. And it clearly demonstrates that if you're on site and you're walking around, there is nothing but a sense of community that emanates from it. That that's incredible. And you know, I, I want to go back to to one point that that you mentioned the seven year time frame or or three years even even uh, being aggressive. Um, so at the beginning of the process, I'm, like all the big money comes in later with the with the tax credit equity, and, and then uh, uh, how does it, how do you find the funding at the beginning of the process just to to go find the site, secure the site, and and do all that? This is Marty, and I can uh, add add something to that. We or ORF is um, a community development financial institution or a CDFI. And over the years, we've been able to um, accumulate some lending capital for pre-development financing, just like you're talking about. So, so we're able to make low interest loans and defer some of those uh, interest charges until um, the permanent capital is able to come in. It's been really useful tool over the years. And there are others... Um, that that do similar things are, are not only in Washington State but around the country. One of the things um, too, Corey, I'd like to add about the time frame and some of the things that add to it. The the land can be a really tricky part of it, um, and I think that might be worth spending a little more time on. 
um, many communities acknowledge that they have a, a need for affordable housing in general, uh, probably housing across the income spectrum and farm worker housing in particular. Um, but despite that, there can be a number of concerns people raise about where it's located um, uh, because they're concerned about the potential impact of uh, on their neighborhood and on their community. Um, we have the history to know what Tony described is true, that once this is built and occupied, it's going to be a great resource. But unfortunately, a lot of people um, who are unfamiliar with our work or, or what affordable housing can be uh, fear what that might look like and, and can be reluctant to see developments proposed in their neighborhood or their community for fear of, you know, uh, impacts on uh, property values or crimes, crime rates and that sort of thing, which, which we know through long experience um, are, are positive impacts to property values and, and lowering crime rates. Um, but as one example, we were working on a project several years ago uh, where we had gone through many of the steps, acquired the land, secured the financing, had actually initiated construction, and um, a neighborhood group emerged that sued the local jurisdiction to revoke our building permits. And a hearing examiner in this community surprisingly sided with this community group, even though we were on a piece of property where multifamily development was a, a use that was allowed outright. Um, we were delayed for about 18 months um, uh, fighting this fight, which we eventually won, um, but it was very time consuming and costly uh, with no, no benefit uh, from our perspective other than those delays. Well, the delays obviously were not a benefit. But though that's that's the kind of thing where um, you go from a three year to a seven year process. Um, and, and so anyway, that's what I wanted to share. When you have a, a case like that, uh, how do you, how do you stay with it for for all that time? It's it's really incredible, like that commitment. But how do you how do you fund that? Well, it's very tough. Um, you know, fundamentally, it's part of our mission. You know, so that's why we stick with it. Um, but that one was a very challenging case where we had to, um, you know, go back to a number of our funders and financers and, and see if they were able to um, uh, add some, some capital to the project. We had to do value engineering where, you know, we had to see even, even while having initiated construction, were there things we could revise to cut out costs? Um, and and you know so you just piece it together until it can work again uh, yeah i think as i think about this too is i mean this is a complex and an important topic in in rural areas and in providing this housing um and i know that there's limited funds everywhere um and certainly uh we talked about having to get tax credit um funding which can be competitive and uh and, and, and there are also being urban areas that, that need these funds. Uh, what are things that make it possible to get the funding you need? And does it help to consider um, uh, veteran, homeless, senior housing, uh, other activities, or are those separate? Well, um, though, 
oftentimes those are separate. The other uh, target populations, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but um, from an operating perspective, they, they present a different set of, you know, requirements and services and so forth. Um, one of the things that I think has been very helpful in Washington state is our housing finance agency, the Washington State Housing Finance Commission, um, recognized the need to serve a broad geography in Washington state. And so they created three geographic pools for the credit, um, one being King County, which was where Seattle is, another being other urban counties, and a third being rural counties. And, um, and each has a percentage of the credit that's allocated to it so that rural, rural proposals are competing with other rural proposals and King County proposals are, are competing with those in King County. And that's been a really helpful policy position our, our finance commission has taken that helps distribute these very limited resources uh, across the state. Brian and, and Marty work on the application side of it. Uh, as I said earlier, that's a stage in which I'm not as actively involved, uh, maybe just to support occasional questions about some things. But the application process is very competitive, as you, as you mentioned, Steve. It, there's certainly more people competing for what's out there than what's available. And you, you have to be strategic in what you're, you're choosing to identify as your, your service needs in order to be able to accumulate points that can make you very competitive for this and that i think also adds to the a little bit more depth to how diligent and and determined our developers are for continuing on this path in the community and i've been in support of developers who have gone in for for an application of credits who have ended up not getting the allocation and it's certainly very disappointing and it could be felt in the community and you know, the best thing you can do in that situation is just put it back together and, and try to figure out how you can identify a couple tweaks here and there that might be able to help make it more competitive a year later. But one thing that does help, and I think this is a, a really what Marty and Brian always have to be cognizant of when they're working on these things, is being able to line up and identify your soft funding sources that you can, from which you can um, get support in your application uh, to make you more competitive too. Because I think by design, the Washington State Housing Finance Commission is trying to make sure that you have something you're bringing to the table that's going to close and going to be ready to be done. And it's fully, there's a full-throated support from your community to build this. Uh, you know, following up on Tony's um, comments, you know, that in Washington, um, we're very lucky that there's a high degree of coordination among the, the funding sources for affordable housing. And so, as a, as a provider and a developer, that's, uh, you know, that's very helpful um, in that their policies um, are well aligned with one another uh, and their funding, uh, the timing of their funding awards are also highly coordinated. And I know that that's not always the case in, in other states. That's, that's a great clarification, Brian. And, and I wonder if we could, could you put a little, um, detail behind that, maybe as it relates to, I, I think that all those different sources of capital being needed to come, needing to be coordinated and getting put together like that? Yeah, I, I think one of the key challenges, particularly for rural communities, is that there's a lack of local 
funding resources available. And that's one of the defining characteristics of those local communities. And so for us, the resources from the state, the, in Washington, that's the, uh, the Washington State Housing Trust Fund, uh, serves as that uh, soft money that comes into the deal and, and really is the local funding resource to fill the gap um, that uh, that's created through the tax credit program, where the tax credits are, um, as a program, is really intended to provide about 70% of the capital needed to develop. Uh, and, and then as a developer, you have to assemble the soft financing for that remaining 30%. Uh, and in our cases, that is typically uh, for rural communities, um, that is the housing trust fund that makes up that uh, that gap. So, are you ever, are you ever able to do deals that that involve hard debt, or is it always soft? Uh, well, historically, uh, it's all been soft. Um, more recently, uh, we've we've seen some that have a, a very small degree of hard debt uh, relative to the total development costs. Um, again, typically one of the challenges in, in rural communities is that uh, the area median income, uh, the household incomes in those counties uh, is very low um, compared to other urban areas. And so that limits the amount of rent that you're able to charge, uh, as well as what families are able to afford in those communities. And, and that has a direct impact then on how much debt the property can service and still maintain you know positive cash flow and operations it's it's it can be particularly very challenging for uh, a smaller project that not only have 30 30 units and as brian said it's a lower ami you're trying to target a dcr that the debt service itself on an annual basis is not a significantly high number i mean certainly there are people that may have mortgage payments that are more significant than that but you have a very thin margin in your operations um, when in consideration of all the money that you're um, you're trying to make sure that you're saving in your reserves uh, for future challenges of the project. So it's uh, having hard debt. I mean, it's important to make sure that it's greatly reduced from what you might typically see at a larger project. Absolutely. Yeah. And just, you know, as a as a concrete example, um, in Yakima County, our median income is right around $50,000. In King County, which is where Seattle is, the median income is well over $100,000. Um, so uh, obviously when you're serving a percentage of those median incomes, if, you're, if your starting point is $50,000 and you're say serving 50% of that number, it just doesn't generate the cash you need to afford very much hard debt. I think one of the challenges that we've seen in, uh, again, in those rural counties, if you're looking over the last 10 year period, is that uh, relative to their more urban counterparts, um, wages uh, and household incomes are, are not increasing at a rate that uh, keeps up with inflation. In fact, using Yakima County as an example, you know, over the last 10 years, incomes have gone up. Uh, on average, at about one point one to one and a half percent, you know, whereas inflation, you know, continues to creep up, um, you know, pretty consistently on, on that kind of three percent uh, to three and a half percent inflation uh, each year. 
that does create challenges, especially the, both the both the low level and the low level of growth. And and, and an additional challenge in in current times is is COVID and uh, and how that could that can hit those same households and, and cause a loss of income. Uh, are there things that you're able to see already as it relates to that, or is it too early to tell? Well, for for our portfolio, you know, we were really concerned as COVID was hitting uh, about what the impact would be to to farm workers. Um, and fortunately, um, uh, one of the positive outcomes I think um, is that, um, that that farm workers are recognized as being essential workers. Uh, and that the work that they do is absolutely critical to uh, the functioning of our society across the country in in providing food that nourishes us. Um, so I think that was very important in terms of a recognition of the role that they play. Uh, what what we've seen is that because of that, because they were considered essential workers, they were allowed to continue to work. Um, during this time when the rest of the state was largely uh, shut down. And, and so uh, that meant that while they might not be working uh, as many hours as they normally would uh, during these uh, seasons of high production, um, they were still working some. Um, as that's progressed now, um, you know, we're eight months into the pandemic and we're at the end of the harvest season. And so we are starting to see more families, um, you know, uh, contacting us for assistance uh, with uh, and a need for rental assistance or utility assistance as they're moving into their kind of off season, which typically lasts, you know, anywhere from six to maybe uh, 12 weeks is kind of their downtime uh, for some families. And so, um, you know, how that impacts families has been a little bit delayed over this process for COVID in that um, they were able to stretch their dollars and, and continue, uh, you know, providing for their families during those um, active seasons, but um, but they may have been tapping into or, or not able to develop the types of reserves that they're used to to carry the family during the off season. Now that, that's so tough, um, so tough for the, for the families, and so I, I think two th two things I'd like to to touch on from from here. One being um, just how you know how you, uh, you know, Brian as, as a, a you know owner operator, like how, how your company manages through that uh, and, and manages to support uh, to support the residents. Uh, so I'd like to start there, but would also just like to uh, you know come back around and talk about. You know, maybe a specific property or two just to get get a better understanding. But let's start with that that uh, question about uh, COVID and, and impact to the residents. Uh, well, so at our multifamily sites, one of the things that we've been able to do from the outset is um, we have a, a community building uh, where we uh, deliver uh, resident services. And, and we don't always deliver that directly, but we coordinate with a number of service providers in the community. And part of our goal is uh, is to identify and overcome uh, the barriers to access for farm worker families. So that can be, uh, you know, it's often a migrant, uh, an immigrant workforce, and so there are language barriers um, that are challenges. There are uh, awareness of local resources that are challenged and. In this time of COVID, that's been more evident than ever. Um, 
one of the positive things right now is that there's, you know, there's some assistance that's been provided by local philanthropists to community foundations that we've been able to connect families with. Um, there's been a fund at the state level that's uh, specifically targeted to uh, households that might not otherwise have access to uh, resources uh, at the federal level as part of the kind of supportive uh, stimulus package or CARES packages that were provided. And so we've been able to help families apply for those resources and receive them to help uh, assist them during this time. Uh, in, in addition, we've coordinated with a number of different food banks uh, to help uh, you know, ensure that families have enough food. Uh, and, and what we're anticipating right now and in, in starting on the, the early stages of this trend is as the harvest season winds down, is that the need is increasing substantially from previous years, and we're already handling a, a significantly larger volume of uh, requests for assistance than than we might might typically see. I, I would also just you know looking at one of the, the the key challenges in our efforts to develop housing in rural communities is is looking at finding investors that are willing to to provide that upfront equity through the tax credit program in those communities because they're often considered higher risk and so uh, typically the amount that uh, investors are willing to fund is a little bit less than what they might consider in uh, in urban markets and so you know one of the recent developments that we're working on right now that was funded um, uh, received an allocation of tax credits during this time of COVID was is a development in a small community just northwest of Tiet of Yakima. It's about 12 miles northwest in the community of Tiaton, and and in this instance, we were very lucky to be partnering with uh, Tony and NEF um, to who worked very hard behind the scenes to identify a funder. In this case, Freddie Mac, who was willing to uh, to provide investment into this rural community during a time of, of, of economic uncertainty um, as a result of the pandemic. And, and so th those policies around uh, providing incentives to serve rural communities or duty to serve for farm worker communities, uh, it really does have a tangible impact. Uh, and, and we've seen that in the case of this uh, Titan uh, farm worker housing development. And, and we, we were really excited to to be involved in in that one um, and it's it's great to hear how much of a how much of a help that that is um, yeah this is guys this has been such a, a fantastic discussion um, and I just want to bring one more point back back around because we, we spent a lot of time in in uh, in Washington state and and your expertise there but I'd, I'd just like to connect that uh, to the rest of the country, because uh, obviously agricultural work happens in in many different regions in the country, but I imagine that you know the crops are different, the needs are different, uh, and some of the approaches are different. So, you know, what can you tell us about about some of what you've learned um, in Washington and, and in your work uh, with other, others around the country? Well, I I can share that. I think a common theme that we're seeing is that. Um, the provision of housing is an incentive to recruit and retain a workforce. And I think that's true across industries and, it, and agriculture is no exception. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, work with some 
folks in Michigan about a year ago who have a vibrant agriculture economy and they're and and they're trying to recruit workers and and retain them and viewing housing as an instrumental part of that and um and i think that's true throughout the country that um uh, that if you have an affordable place for people to live uh, they're more likely to be willing to take the job and stick with it yeah i this is tony i you know i, I want to make sure that i'm emphasizing how critical it is to have developers that are working on these communities and we do often use the term community to describe affordable housing projects or properties. And I, I really do believe that community is a far more accurate term when you're describing what, what it embodies within that, that town or that city. And that is, it goes across the whole spectrum. It's not isolated district, farm worker and rural. This is anywhere. You're looking at a group, a developer that is part of that community that's helping to provide housing for the people who live and work in that community. And in many places, just being able to solve the need for housing is not the whole picture. It's not, it's a critical piece of it, but you're trying to make sure that you're developing this community in a way that everybody has access to what they need and they're close to their work environment. You don't want to have a situation where you have people having to commute two hours a day each way just to get to their job. You want to have that, that environment that's accessible and you know you, you you identify these places and that's what our developers are doing that's what marty and brian are that is their daily work um so i you know if i were to say anything when you when you meet after COVID's over when you meet a housing developer give them a hug well tony that that is that's so well said and and you know thank you tony thank you brian thank you marty this has been a fantastic discussion uh, about a really important topic uh so again, just, just thanks so much and, and uh, looking forward to uh, talking to you again at some point. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.